Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. Falling at 5%. The 10-year yield topping 5% early this morning, but then uh, dropping, doing about uh, about face, a nearly 20 basis point intraday move. Will this week's earnings break the bond market's vice grip on the stock market? We'll debate that. Plus, targeting Foxconn, Chinese authorities are investigating the Apple iPhone maker over taxes and land use. Is this Beijing flexing its muscle against Taiwan and the United States? We'll get the latest. And later, the chart master will be along to break down his list of stocks that are stuck in a bear trap. He'll tell us how investors can break free from these unbearable names. Oh, man. I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ. <laughs> on the desk tonight, Tim Seymour, Guy Dami, Julie Beal, and Mike Coe. We start off with markets rejecting a 5% 10-year yield in a big way. The benchmark Treasury hitting 5.02% early this morning, a new 16-plus year high, but then falling 17 basis points from those levels. It was the third straight day the 10-year hit and closed below that key psychological level. The catalyst, potentially two tweets from Bill Ackman, revealing he's covered his bond short, saying there's too much risk to remain short bonds at current rates. One sector of the market in particular seemed to like the yield move, and that would be mega cap tech. Look at the gains in names like Meta, Amazon, Microsoft, and Alphabet, all of which report earnings this week. So can the momentum keep going, or should you be worried about what the results will do to the stocks? It was a really interesting, I think, move in the bond market today. 100%. When you see a 16-basis-point move over the course of a few minutes, that's a staggering move. So let's dissect it for a second. And listen... I'm not pretending to know what was Bill, Bill Ackman's head. Great trade, number one. I mean, he totally nailed it. But number two, I think he looks over the landscape and says, all right, a couple of things are happening. The economy seems to be slowing, and the potential for geopolitical risk is escalating with each passing day. Both of those, in my opinion, would make yields go lower. So he says, you know what, the risk-reward probably doesn't make sense here. I'm going to take off the trade. Good for him. I don't think, though, he top-ticked this one. I still think rates are going to move higher on the supply side of things. It might take a couple weeks now, given what's transpiring, maybe some of the unwind, but I still think yields are headed higher. I understand why he's doing it. I don't necessarily, though, think he's going to mark the top in yields. So in other words, you go higher after the issuance is digested? I, I believe so. What do you think? Well, the things that have caused yields to move higher have hardly really changed. So I, I agree with Guy. Uh, Bill Ackman has, has been very outspoken at different points. And, and I just think you got to a place, and we're going to have Jim Biacco on in a moment to, to really give some insights as a guy that was calling for this move. Um, I, I think this pause makes a ton of sense. I think, I think the, the fact of the matter is we also have equity markets this week that possibly, if you believe that some of these big names could disappoint a bit, we're going to get into that too, that would actually probably be bond-friendly because these have been you know, the telltales on the broader economy. What should worry you, and one of the bigger reasons why I think yields have been going higher, is that the 10-year JGB closed at a cycle high here. We're, we're near 89 bips on the JGB weekend. Press was that they are actually going to give up that 1% barrier. I think that the distortion in the Japanese bond market has, has a lot to do with keeping yields down globally. And I think that's something that you really have to worry about. In fact,
impact. That is the biggest risk on the upside to U.S. Treasuries outside of some kind of uh, extraordinary issuance dynamic we don't hear about. Because what Bill Ackman's talking about are risks that typically are safe haven drivers for U.S. Treasuries. So uh, when we look at the equity markets and we look at what they did last week, doesn't surprise me that we got a little bit of a kickback today. Again, we saw uh, the triple Qs. I, I, I think the charts on a lot of those mega cap tech stocks look, look decent. And, and as much as uh, it's been easy to say, hey, they're holding the linchpin, the fact of the matter is, I think what we're going to hear this week is that th- those numbers are going to be right down the fairway for the most part. There are risks, uh, but I do think that that's part of how you're playing this. You're, you're not getting short these names. You're probably figuring out where you want to be long them and short other parts of the market. Yeah, Mike, how are you feeling about mega cap tech? And if you think that yields are at least in the short term at a high or at a, at a peak of some sort, then is that sort of a, an all clear for at least this trade to continue for a little bit longer? I don't know. The options market isn't really signaling an all clear just on the rate side. First, let's just talk about that a little bit. I mean, for those who are following along at home and want to take a look at how long bonds behave, treasuries, that is, you can just look to an ETF like TLT. That thing is trading with a significantly higher options premium than SPY is. So right now, as far as the options market is concerned, uh, treasuries are far riskier and more volatile than stocks are. And that's in an environment where stocks haven't been particularly uh, calm either. So that's one thing I would quickly point out. Uh, one of the things I also thought that was interesting, tail end of last week, uh, you know, that's when we started to see a beaten up sector all of a sudden roll over again. And that was financials from mid-Tuesday through the end of the week. And we did see some areas of strength in sort of the higher beta, higher growth areas, which suggests to me that investors are more interested in idiosyncratic growth than they are in sort of making a broader macro bet. So I think that what we're seeing in the bond market actually should be cause for some concern uh, looking ahead. Julie? Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I think that it's becoming more and more of a stock pickers market where before, you know, we just had dumped so much money on the economy that everything was working pretty well because our consumer is so healthy. And now we're really separating the men from the boys or whatever else, what metaphor we want to use. And I think that that's really starting to play out. And you're seeing with earnings, you're seeing that in general, although expectations on sell side estimates are pretty low, I think on buy side, people have been pretty disappointed with ho-hum results. In order for your stock to go up, you need to not just report a good quarter, you need to clearly show strong guidance. And not a lot of companies feel really confident to do that. And what's happening in the bond markets is not giving them any kind of comfort whatsoever. Just the volatility is really enough to keep people on the sidelines holding their breath. So we thought it'd be an interesting question to ask you guys, the traders, Mm. which stocks, which mega cap tech stocks you are most concerned about going into earnings, especially since we have a huge slate this week. And interestingly, Guy and Mike agreed on one name, and that would be the mega cap tech stock that has gained the most in the past three months, the past quarter. That would be Meta. Why? Not an indictment on Facebook by all. I mean, valuation at this level is trading at a market multiple, probably 18 times next year's numbers. And you have revenue and EPS growth to back that up, it probably should be a higher multiple. I'm worried because if you think about who their advertisers are, small, medium-sized businesses, we're starting to see the Russell rollover, the micro caps rollover as well. Those represent, obviously, a lot of these small and medium-sized businesses. If there's a lag or a delay or a push forward in terms of their advertising dollars, Facebook will be the first one to feel it. So if you start to get some, I don't know, rhetoric or some talk around that slowdown, that could augur potentially poorly for the broader market, which is why I'm looking at Facebook. Not against in terms of where the stock is going, but in terms of the tell for the broader economy. Uh, Mike, why'd you pick Meta? 
Uh, I picked it, actually. Part of that, I think, is some of the same reasons that Guy was just talking about. There's another one, too, of course, which is what is management going to do? You know, people often talk about some of these companies as having levers that they can pull to turn on or off profitability, to turn on or off free cash flow. This is a company that demonstrated they have those levers and they have used them. That's positive in one sense, which demonstrates that they can generate huge free cash flow. It's a negative when they elect to start pursuing things like the metaverse and throwing buckets of money at it. And suddenly you start seeing free cash flow drop to near zero as it did at the tail end of last year. And that's really what caused this swoon. So if we start to see management start talking once again about investing in some of their visionary pro uh, projects, that, I think, is a potential risk. But the company is very cheap if they don't do that. And even with some of the pressures that Guy was just talking about, you know, they might actually get some flow from X, for example, which has obviously changed their algorithms. And I think some of the content creators might start moving to some of the meta platform instead. In terms of turning on and off the spigot, that sounds like Amazon, which Julie is worried about. Mm -hmm. I mean, interestingly, Amazon has exposed its consumer facing on the retail side, but then it's also enterprise spending facing on the AWS side of things. Yeah, and I think part of it too is for them, it's a little bit, they don't have quite as many variable costs as something like a meta. And so I worry more about the level of kind of CapEx investment, hard dollars flowing out of that business in order to be as competitive as they can be in AI. I think there's a little bit of a thinner margin for them, no pun intended, on being able to weather any kind of storm in enterprise spending or the consumer. So I'm a little bit, I think, generally speaking, big cap tech, I think, has earned its premium multiples, broadly speaking, right? Because you're exposed to secular growth trends. These have excellent balance sheets. They are in businesses where it really pays to be big. But this is the one that I think is the most exposed to the consumer. And for that reason, I'm a little bit more concerned. I, with all due respect, I think you guys are in D2 right now. I think D1 is, is Microsoft and Apple. That's right. That's a college. Division 1, Division 2. It's a college. He's basically calling us the JV, and he's the vice. Well, <laughs> I'm not calling you the JV, per se, but those, those companies, it's Microsoft. It's the second most important company in the world. It's the company that, to me, is in touch with the enterprise. They're, they were the one that really almost even started the AI frenzy on some level with ChatGBT. Uh, they're the one that I think is the most resilient business model. And they're the one of the charts that, along with Apple, uh, at the end of October and the beginning of October, really started to scare everybody and say, is the market falling out of bed? Their chart has done better than Apple's. Uh, I, I think the biggest issue with Microsoft is not that their earnings numbers are going to be difficult. I think Azure's been guided to mid-20s growth. I think it's probably what they're going to give you. It's that the street wants to be at 35 times on this. And, and that's, you know, relative to history, that's expensive. So it's the second most important company in the world. It's the second biggest company, certainly in terms of market cap. That's D1, folks. That's the one to be worried about. And that's the one that I think has the most on the line. All right. For more on the rates and the markets, let's bring in market forecaster Jim Bianco, Bianco Research. Jim, great to have you with us. Um, he warned, by the way, uh, on Fast Money earlier this month that bond yields could race through 5% in the next couple of weeks, now believes they can go even higher despite today's reversal. How high are we talking about, Jim? Well, if the yield curve is going to uninvert, and that seems to be what it's doing, and that means that the highest point in the yield curve will eventually become long-term interest rates, which is normal. Well, the highest point in the yield curve right now is six-month bills at 5.5%. So if we're going to completely uninvert the yield curve, and I think we're destined on to do that or somewhere along those lines, then it's got to go to at least five and a half percent because the Fed has said that they're higher for longer. Uh, so I don't think that this move is quite over with just yet. I know everybody keeps asking me when the move is going to be over with, but I think that the problem that everybody faces is 
They forgot that 2009 to 2020 was the QE period. That was abnormal. They look at zero rates. They say, my God, we've come up 500 basis points. That's a lot. That's going to hurt things. No, the first several hundred of that was just getting back to some level of neutral. The last little bit of it has been restrictive. I don't think it's been restrictive enough to really hurt the economy. That's why later this week we're going to probably report a 4% GDP after we had some pretty good numbers in uh, jobs and with unemployment claims going under 200,000. So we're not really punishing the economy. And that's why I think these markets have room for rates to continue to move higher. And laying out the case to five and a half percent, Jim, you didn't mention Treasury issuance. You didn't mention the Bank of Japan. And I'm wondering how those two factors factor into five and a half percent. Well, they don't help the situation that, you know, Treasury issuance is going to be more of a shift from short term to long term. So it's not that we're going to be issuing more than what we've expected. It's that we've issued a lot of Treasury bills after the debt ceiling was lifted. That was four or five months ago. Now they're maturing and the Treasury wants to kind of issue more three-year, five-year, 10-year notes. And so that's going to help put upward pressure on long rates. The Bank of Japan, remember now, Japanese are the largest foreign holder of uh, treasury securities in the world, not China. So if they are going to loosen up and let their rates go up, Japanese investors are going to say, you know what, our own JGBs, their Japanese government bonds, look more attractive. They'll sell treasuries, they'll move back to Japan And then we're going to see a dampening of demand from one of the largest buyers of treasuries in the world. Hey, Jim, Tim, I agree with that. Um, But great call a couple weeks ago on our show was probably three weeks ago. You said they're going higher. They've gone higher. Um, You also pointed out that you think it's not just Japanese uh, institutional buyers or even the Bank of Japan. It's that a lot of investors were on board with this recession argument and that a lot of people have actually capitulated. That's the term I think I've heard you use. Um, Talk to Mm -hmm. me about that. Where do you think positioning is now? Because it seems to me like everybody thinks yields are going higher, even though, you know, it's a conversation you were having a few weeks ago and certainly a couple months ago. This isn't where people were. They weren't talking about 4 percent GDP. How much of this uh, in the institutional and in the retail world is something that you think actually might be why we could get more of a pause right now? Well, yeah, I think that, you know, the, the problem with positioning is there's thin twit talk and there's what people say and everybody says it's going to go higher. Then if you look at where the way that people are positioned, I like to joke that there's they're up at night staring at the ceiling going, my God, there's going to be a big bond rally without me. And that's why you see this relentless flow in the TLT. And that's why you see this relentless amount of, of call buying in TLT. In the last month, there's been a million and a half calls purchased in TLT and something like 400,000 puts. Uh, that's why you continue to see surveys like the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey having the highest amount of people in the 20 year history saying the next 100 basis point move is going to be lower. So that's why I say there's got to be some kind of capitulation. Everybody is waiting, begging. They're trying to position for this big decline in interest rates and it doesn't happen. And they keep getting punished while they're waiting for it. And we all know the way markets work is when it happens is when no one's positioned for it. And so I still think that there's got to be some more capitulation in this bond market, which is why I don't think this move is over. Now, maybe for the next couple of weeks, we churn sideways around 5%. But ultimately, I still think we're going to go higher and see a capitulation. Jim, always good to see you. Thank you. Thank Jim you. Bianco, Bianco Research. 5.5% by Jan 1. How does that factor into seasonality, Guy? Or dare we call, you know, in terms of uh, for, the for Santa the, Claus rally. Oh, I'm ready. We're, 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 we're actually in your so Come on. Tim, we wait for Halloween at least to get no. into. No. Ooh. <laughs>
That was one of the great episodes of all time when I turned to you and just said, boo. We should find that in the archive. Oh, man. Well, I'm not, I don't adhere to seasonality necessarily, but I'll play your reindeer game and say if we see 5.5% over the next few weeks, the equity market will not like that. And we will be, where are we close, 43 and change, 4,300? We will be testing 4,000 under those set of circumstances that Jim just talked about. For the record, I was going to just ask you, where do stocks go with yields of 5.5%? I'm in your head. I'm in your head. But I wanted I'm to in do your head. Of course you did. <laughs> All right, let's get to NVIDIA meantime. Reportedly planning to team up with ARM to make chips for PCs. The news taking a bite out of Intel and AMD shares. Christina Parsonellis has got the details here on set. Christina. Well, Reuters reporting that both NVIDIA and AMD are looking to build these central processing units for personal computers by 2025. This is a space normally dominated by Intel. NVIDIA, though, on the other hand, dominates the GPU space. You know, those graphics chips that we keep talking about needed for AI models. So CPU chips for NVIDIA would be a new avenue. Those chips would also use ARM architecture, which is why ARM stock jumped on the news. And I I know a lot of people get confused with all these names. Think of ARM like a coding language in which companies like NVIDIA, Electronics Arts, Apple use to design their own chips. That ARM language is so good, it helps Apple make custom chips for its Mac computers. So that means ARM specializes in the blueprint for these PC chips. But the problem is, so does Intel with its x86 architecture. So think of it like two languages, ARM versus x86. And that's why Intel posted its worst day in a month. AMD also plans to create a CPU chip for PCs using ARM architecture, and yet the stock fell. So why is that? Well, AMD already makes PC chips using Intel's language. And so there are fears that this new chip could cannibalize the old AMD PC chip. Qualcomm, another company that wasn't mentioned in this report, but they've been saying for quite some time that they too plan to build a PC chip. And we should get more details tomorrow at their annual summit, uh, just around 3 p.m. when he makes the keynote. All of these new PC chips, though, mean eroding market share for Intel. And that's why you're seeing the negative reaction. NVIDIA, AMD declined to comment, though. Where does Microsoft fit in, right? Because Oh, yeah, the chips, Mm -hmm. a good point, too, that these particular chips that NVIDIA would be working on would work with the Microsoft infrastructure as well, sir. Yeah, so we'll get some more details tomorrow because there's going to be an event that Microsoft is holding tomorrow to reveal some more of the details here. What do you think of this? It's very interesting. Very interesting. KP breaking it down. All right, so go back to August. NVIDIA traded down to 409, huge bounce. Go back to September, traded down to 409, huge bounce. What was the low today? 409. Thank you, Tim, for playing. I appreciate you playing. Oz was here. No, Oz is not here. But 409 again, and we bounce. So you have something (laughs) to trade against in the form of that level. Big volume day. And let me be clear. I'm not bullish in NVIDIA, but the the stock declared itself to have support. That's how you trade this name. Can Intel get through this, Mike Coe? Intel's got some problems. You know, it seemed like they were working their way out of it. You know, they it sort they sort of went to sort of more business-focused management rather than product-focused management. Didn't have the engineering team in the C-suite, and that obviously proved to be a problem. You know, one of the things I look to is, you know, if you go and you take a look at a new machine, once upon a time, they put a little sticker on them. You may remember, and everybody advertised about having Intel inside. Now the big thing that everybody cares about, as you were previously talking about, are the GPUs. So when you buy a new laptop and it's got a powerful NVIDIA processor and it's going to say something like GTX Force or something like that on it, I mean, if they start moving into Intel's territory, I I just find it very difficult to believe they're going to be able to fight their way out of that one easily. It's, it's interesting to hear Microsoft get in the fray, too, and pretty much say, hey, guys, you know, I, I, you better have the chips ready to power new AI windows. And, and they have the ability to push this around. Um, 
The only thing that's more extraordinary about NVIDIA's 380% move or 180% move this year is, I think, how it's held in. I mean, that 17% pullback off of that kind of a move and the fact that semis threw a lot of difficult questions about the economy, uh, valuations and whatnot, I think those charts are still holding up. I don't, I don't love all the good news we've priced in there, and I'm not telling you it's going up forever. I'm telling you, based upon what the market has done, so far you have to give that pullback and that bounce off of... 409. 409. Uh, a, formula a, 409. A, 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 a it's funny you plus. say that. Formula, formula 409. 409. Yeah, yeah. I mean, KP, you use you, Formula 409? I'm a big fan. I don't fan. even think it exists anymore. Yeah, come on, really? Tim. I don't think, yeah, I mean, I think Windex just cleaned their clock. No, no, it yeah, did it not. It just did, actually. No. Well, we'll find out in the break. <laughs> um, Christina, months. thank you. Always nice to see you. Christina <laughs> Parsonopoulos. Coming up, more M&A action in the oil space. Chevron inking a huge deal to buy Hess for more than $50 billion. More on what this buyout could mean for the sector. That is next, plus crypto. Cruising higher, Bitcoin topping 30 $31,000 and some names in the space are jumping on this move. How options traders are playing that action straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back into. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This extends our visible growth profile into the 2030s. Uh, we've got leading shareholder distributions. Our uh, dividend growth has been 6% uh, per year over the last five years, double that of our nearest peer. We announced uh, the intent to grow our, raise our dividend at 8% in the first quarter of next year, increase our share buyback to $20 billion a year. We're returning cash to shareholders and still see relatively low multiples compared to the rest of the market. So Absolutely. we think there's a lot of upside. That was Chevron CEO Michael Worth on CNBC earlier today talking about what the Hess deal will bring to shareholders, the stock dropping nearly 4%. While Hess was down over 1% on the news, the announcement of the oil mega merger follows Exxon's bid for Pioneer Natural earlier this month. Mike, what do you make of this deal? Yeah, I mean, this is pretty interesting. Obviously, they're making a play for, you know, one of the industry leaders. And, you know, the entire space, he was indicating that, you know, they feel like they're cheap to the market. They're very cheap to the market. And, you know, what's kind of interesting to me is that if you take a look at the big integrated players, Exxon was always the one that traded at a premium to the rest of the group, usually a turn or two over Chevron and Conoco. They're all basically sort of equally valued right now. That's looking at the U.S. integrated names specifically at about 11 times earnings. And if you take a look at their valuations relative to their proven, uh, you know, both developed and undeveloped reserves, uh, these companies seem like they're reasonable, reasonably priced to me here. Although I will say that some of the uh, offshore integrated oil companies are even cheaper. You know, we don't happen to own any of the U.S. ones. We do own BP, though, and that one's trading about seven times. Michael Worth also said something else that was interesting. He said that there are too many CEOs for per a billion barrel of oil wow. equivalents out there. So, so there, there should be some more integration to come, Julian. I'm wondering if, if you're at all in the oil space here. 
No, I mean, I continue to not be in the oil space just because it's really uncomfortable having, you know, all your dependence on commodity. And right now, I would argue that oil is really being determined by a single human being in Saudi Arabia, and that is difficult to make an investable case for it. But I do think there's absolutely more to come for this space. You know, it, you know, the U.S., generally speaking, is quite, quite explored and pretty picked over. But there are so many of these smaller assets with proven reserves that I think these majors would really like to be able to scoop up. So I think there's more to come. So if anything, this is just good news for the investment bankers. Or even aside from the majors, Devin, for... Marathon, potentially. I mean, there's a lot of reports of Chesapeake for Southwestern. I, I think this is reaffirmation of super cycle stuff. This is, and again, I think what this did for Chevron, like the headline could be scary for folks that said, hey, look, they're at it again. They're trying to buy growth at all costs. First of all, they didn't overpay. There's a 3% premium to the market on one of the most valuable assets. And again, they, their Guiana assets are some of the best high quality long-term uh, growth assets. And that's what they're doing. They're increasing the dividend yield. So if you look at the growth, we're going to go from probably 6% div growth to, to 8% div growth. Growth. This is why you're an investor, not a trader in energy names. I love the deal. Report October 27th. Remember, it was in February they announced a $75 billion with a B stock buyback Chevron. They're great companies that trade at less than a market multiple. They should be trading more richer than they are, and they're not. Stocks go higher. There's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. A big week for Bitcoin as the crypto keeps climbing. And some related names are riding the coattails. The action in that space next. Plus, a tax probe in China. As a key iPhone supplier gets targeted, the impact it could have on Apple's production and what it means for the tech titan ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin rising more than 5% today, topping $31,000 for the first time since July. The cryptocurrency extending its gains from last week as investors await news about a spot Bitcoin ETF. The optimism driving related stocks like Marathon Digital, MicroStrategy, and Grayscale Bitcoin trust higher as well. Bitcoin's big bounce, meantime, making waves among option traders today. Mike, you're looking at Coinbase. Yeah, this one traded more than two times its average daily call volume, calls out pace puts by over three to one. Most of that activity concentrated in the weekly 80 strike calls, a lot of retail purchases in there. About 19,000 trading for just under $1.40 at contract buyers, obviously making speculative bets that the bounce we saw today could continue. And as you pointed out, Marathon Digital, Riot, and uh, MicroStrategy were among those names that also saw significantly above average options activity on the bounces that we saw today. What do you think about Coinbase, Guy? I think it's interesting. You know, basically at this level, this, I don't know, $78 to $80 level, 
since the middle of 2022. You've been going sideways, creating this bottom. All you need is some incremental good news, and this stock goes up 15 20%. We've seen it before, by the way, over the last couple of years. I'll tell you, I think Robinhood on November 7th, given where we are, is interesting as well. Well, and the incremental good news, I mean, there are catalysts out there on the regulatory side, right and left for them. And, and I'm long Coinbase from around these levels over the last three months. And I, I just think that the correlation to the underlying is still too strong. There aren't the other options. They've had so much bad news priced in. I kind of like that optionality. Coming up, tax troubles in China, a major Apple supplier under investigation why regulators are targeting the manufacturer and what it could mean for iPhone production ahead. Plus, could next year's summer blockbuster season be in danger? The lasting impacts of the ongoing actor strike and why it's crunch time for the studios to make a deal. we got the details in Fast Money Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks, finishing mixed to kick off the week. The Dow falling nearly 200 points, the S&P down about two-tenths of a percent, but the Nasdaq snapping a four-day losing streak up nearly three-tenths of a percent. Chemical manufacturer FMC Corp dropping more than 13 percent, slashing guidance. The company also launching a cost structure review. That stock is down more than 53 percent this year. Walgreens, meantime, jumping more than 3 percent after an upgrade to overweight at J.P. Morgan. The analyst raising the price target to 30 bucks, saying today kicks off a new era for the stock as a new CEO steps in. Shares are down more than 41% this year. And Chinese stocks continuing to sell off the CSI 300 index, hitting its lowest level since February of 2019. And speaking of China, Apple supplier Foxconn coming under increased scrutiny by authorities there. The company saying it will cooperate with the government following a report that officials are conducting tax audit inspections and reviewing land use of Foxconn subsidiaries. This coming against a backdrop of mounting political and competitive pressures with the company's founder also running in Taiwan's upcoming presidential elections. Let's get more on the potential impact of this investigation with DeWardrick McNeil, managing director at Longview Global and a CNBC contributor. DeWardrick, great to have you with us. Um, help us understand why the Chinese government wants to uh, torpedo Terry Goh's uh, candidacy. Thanks for having me, uh, Melissa. Uh, let's step back and start with the investigation. As you point out, they claim it's for uh, land use violations. There may be some there there. But as you point out, Melissa, uh, this strikes me as a politically motivated investigation into Hanhai, a Foxconn subsidiary in China. And the timing is unique here, Melissa. Uh, We're about two months away from a very critical presidential election in Taiwan. And Mr. Guo, Terry Guo, the founder of Foxconn, is a declared candidate. And in his August announcement, Melissa, he was pressed by uh, the press. They asked him, uh, do you feel like you would be pressured by China, given how important China is to Foxconn? And he pushed back pretty aggressively and said, A, he would not be bullied by China. He cited some of the important customers he had, naming Apple and and, uh, Amazon and Tesla, and said, Melissa, it would be up to the Chinese government to explain to the world why these very important companies' supply chains were impacted by their action. Very reminiscent of the Jack Ma October 2020 comments, and we all know how that went down. And then finally, Foxconn has made a big showing over the last two-plus years of diversifying their supply chains outside of China, here in, in the U.S. and Wisconsin and Lordstown, Ohio. And the CEO recently said that India could account for up to t- uh, 20 to 30 percent of Foxconn's manufacturing base. So these sorts of statements are not going to go uh, unnoticed uh, in by the central government in China, Melissa. So I suspect some of this 
uh, we are seeing is sort of a an attempt to uh, really fire a shot over the bow uh, for Mr. Gore. Dwardrick, it's Tim. So in your notes, uh, really fascinating uh, statement, or you, you, you'd say tough talk in Washington, sweet talk in Beijing seems to be kind of what's going on. And this dichotomy is fascinating. Um, do you think there is tough talk uh, pressure on U.S. corporations to hold ground, to hold up uh, at least, you know, American democratic principles in terms of doing business uh, around the world on those companies. And we we were talking last week. We were all talking last week about Tim Cook's visit to China and also the John Stewart show that might be you know taking a shot at China uh, and why maybe that show was pulled. Uh, is there pressure on U.S. corporates anywhere in this country to act a little bit to act more definitive in terms of American democratic principles around the world? Well, certainly, I don't think that that's an official government position, Tim. But to your point, we have seen uh, customers, we've seen shareholders uh, really take a look at uh, how countries behave and where companies are invested and to try and put some pressure on companies to have some principles, to have some standards. But in China, there seems to be a a bit of a double standard here. Uh, As you note. many companies uh, fall behind that we're following the local guidelines and local laws. But the real challenge, uh, Tim, is when Chinese laws are in contradiction with U.S. or or other laws, which ones take precedent? And companies are in a tough spot trying to figure that out. If they act in one way, there could be repercussions in China. If they act one way in China, there could be repercussions here. So I don't envy them, uh, but I think everyone is paying closer attention to these issues around values and, and human rights and and, and how national security uh, is impacting uh, the business bottom line. We've seen a bank run in China. They cut their deposit rates banks for the third time this year. Government stimulus packs, tax cuts, all suggest their economy is ratcheting, not to a halt, but slowing down. That scares me because I think when economies slow down, the next thing is how do we get ourselves out? What are your thoughts in terms of this China-Taiwan situation, which continues to sort of flare up? Well, I think uh, to your point, uh, this is it's always there. So we may pay attention to it in in these sort of flashpoints and and flare ups, as you described it. But this issue is always uh, right there uh, above the surface here. Uh, This latest round, I think, just says to me that China is concerned about this upcoming presidential election. It it looks like uh, for now, at least uh, the current uh, ruling party, the DPP, uh, will win that election again. That's not uh, an outcome that China favors. So I think businesses uh, shouldn't take their eye off the Taiwan ball. I don't expect that there's going to be any sort of an invasion scenario, but we're going to continue to see tension and pressure uh, ramp up the closer we get uh, to the January election. DeWardrick, always good to get your take. Thank you, DeWardrick McNeil. Um, what we saw in Apple shares today, we did see pressure relative to the uh, mega cap tech stocks. It underperformed, although finished the day higher. It actually snapped what would have been its longest losing streak, Mike, since January of 22. And I'm just wondering, you know, how you sort of factored this risk. And we've said on this desk for a very long time that China or Beijing just needed to decide that it wanted to poke Apple. And you could really feel the impact. And here we are. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, obviously, in Guo's case, a situation where essentially throwing down the gauntlet, and that's always a dangerous thing when you're uh, dealing with governments, even free, liberal, and open and democratic ones, that's a dangerous exercise. We've certainly seen in Saudi Arabia, we've seen in Russia, and we've seen in China that uh, challenging more autocratic 
governments is an even bigger risk. And so obviously that presents a risk somewhat to Apple. But if I'm thinking about Apple, and actually I think Tim was kind of alluding to this, they've got plenty of risks, including this, uh, you know, as we look as we look forward towards their earnings, which we're going to be seeing in November. Coming up, you might be pining away for this past summer, but movie studios are already looking ahead to next year. But with actors still on strike, the 2024 blockbuster season is facing some heavy pressure. We've got the latest on the negotiations next. And speaking of blockbusters, you won't believe how much money Taylor Swift's concert film pulled in after its second weekend. The stunning stats when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Could movie studios be in for a cruel summer? Taylor Swift's concert movie bringing crowds to theaters, but with the actor strike now surpassing 100 days, it is crunch time for studios to get ready for next summer's blockbuster season. Julia Borson joins us here on set to explain. Julia, welcome. So great to be here on set. Um, But you are right, Melissa. The pressure is on not just to salvage any television uh, for the broadcasters this TV season, but to get a deal done in the next few weeks so that the studios can finish up their big blockbusters and get them ready for the next summer season, which technically starts for the box office in May. Now, tomorrow, the alliance of studios are returning to the negotiating table after talks broke down about two weeks ago. A push for deal is being led by four key CEOs, Disney's Bob Iger, Warner Brothers Discovery's David Zaslav, Universal's Donna Langley, and Netflix's Ted Sarandos. Now, this comes as Milken estimates that the Hollywood work stoppage has already had more than $6 billion in economic impact. And experts are warning that the cost to the industry couldn't just continue, but actually could accelerate if the actors don't get back to work. Goldman Sachs saying, quote, we expect that previously announced 2024-25 films could move dates as Hollywood prioritizes ramping back up certain productions over others going into 2024. And this all depends on when the actor's strike is resolved. So we're going to be listening very carefully in earnings calls for any commentary on the cost of the strikes. We'll hear that the media companies have saved on production, but we're going to be listening for impact on TV advertising, as well as, of course, box office revenue, because we have no actors out there promoting these films. Yeah. Um, So what is sort of the window in which they have to resolve it in order to get that summer blockbuster slate out there? Well, look, there will be movies next year, no matter what. But if you look at what it costs to finish some of these big films, some of them may be somewhat done. Some of them maybe need a need a couple of reshoots or need actors to do voiceovers. But you want to have the certainty um, before you ramp up production. And it takes a couple of weeks once you know that a deal is done to get production ready to go again and then to get actors back in 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 on sets or, or on location. So if you look at also the fact that in December things pretty much shut down, you want to get things started now so you can get a little bit of production done before the holidays. Um, and then remember, if you're going to have a movie come out in, say, May, you need it really to be done months in advance of that. Yeah. What are you listening for in the earnings uh, calls to give us some clues as to what the costs will be? Well, I think there's one question, which is what is the cost to the TV at the TV season this fall? Broadcast television traditionally has a ton of new shows. We saw a lot of reality, fewer scripted shows, um, and sort of a shift of the broadcast season. We'll see if there's any commentary about whether that was a cost. And then we'll also see if they're, they're talking about the, bo- the, the box office being lower 
because they held back films and they didn't have movie stars around to promote the ones that they did release. So I think right now there's been more commentary about cost savings. They weren't producing anything. They saved a lot on that. But I think that the long-term cost of the industry, you don't want to train audiences not to go to theaters. And I think that's really the concern about summer 2024. But, and Julie, it seems like Netflix has trained audiences to not necessarily expect traditional actors, right? So if you think about it, what's the talk in Hollywood behind the scenes as to who's in the pole position? Or when, what are actors saying in terms of, you know, boy, I feel left out or I'm getting a knock on this door or, you know, insight there? Well, look, the... And the, the real feeling in Hollywood right now is everyone wants to get back to work. But the actors want to make sure that they secure enough gains to make it worthwhile for them that they've been out on strike for so long. Um, it's been interesting because we've seen huge movie stars like George Clooney come in and say, hey, let me help broker a deal. Let's make sure that the, the most high-paid movie stars are not are, are, are sort back. of part of this, are giving back and making sure that money flows first to the lower-paid stars. So I think that that's a big piece of this and some of the efforts by George Clooney and others to make sure that there's more um, more of their big earnings going to cover things like health insurance and others was a big effort. I think AI is still a big sticking point. And at the end of the day, this is really about the transition to streaming and making sure there's compensation for the shift to streaming. And I think people want to protect themselves for what they fear is a coming shift to AI as well. Julia, always great to see you, especially in person. Yeah. It's great to be here. Site. It's fantastic. Uh, what, we, you know, we all started around the same time. Are you going to say royalty? Mount she, Rushmore? No, she is. What's going to Well, a lot of people don't know. JB started around the same time Fast Money was created. I'm okay. just saying that. So for that's sort of inside baseball. So it's great to have her here, number one. Number two, now it's make or break time for Netflix because this level that we traded up to 15% in like a week, we're now the third point of a downtrend from July highs of 480. So if Netflix is going to flex, has to do it now. And real quick, Cruel Summer. Who, who was the first one that sang that song? i give you a clue from the Karate Kid movie. That doesn't help. Bananarama. <laughs> wow. Holy cow. See, that's what happened. She did it. Julia. She, she does this all the time. Extraordinary. Executive yeah. producer in my ear, trusty <laughs> Julia, thank you. <laughs> Coming up, it's a trap. Chartmaster Carter Worth joins us to break down the names that are worse than pair of twos. They're a bunch of bull traps. The technical tale next. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Some charts out there are more devious than your hmm. usual pair of twos. The chart master says they're bull traps. Carter Worth is here to help us make sure we don't get snared. Carter, what are you looking at? <laughs> Never good to get snared. So, um, well, as distinct from value traps, which of course are weak stocks that are so tempting, they're cheap, they're cheap, and they end up being traps. A bull trap, and we'll look at some examples, is something that's been very strong, and yet the strength was a trap. It draws money in, it looks as though it's finally broken out, and it only reverses hard. So we're gonna look at uh, four or five examples, and then one that I think is a prospective bull trap. So if we go to the charts, we'll start with an ETF, and the first one here is the ITB, the home construction. Um, this is now down uh, almost 20%, but it's a textbook example of something that's strong. Remember, the market has yet to make a new high, right? Go to back to it, and it tries to break out, draws in capital, and it's a trap. It reverses hard down again, 20%. Look at another ETF, another sector or theme. Look at XLI. It's the same thing. Now, it looks, again, people are positioned. It's going. It's making a new high. It's leading. There is no recession. The market can't make a high, but it is, and it only reverses. Now it's down some 11%. Let's go to a stock or two, the biggest one of all, Apple. Apple broke out. It had a lot of uh, price target uh, raises, upgrades, and yet it's down 13%, a classic bull trap. 
or something completely different. Look at an alcoholic beverage like Constellation Brands. I'm trying to be eclectic in the choice to make the point that it's a circumstance that has no regard for market cap or type of business. It makes the high, it breaks out, draws in, and then it uh, reverses. Finally, look at um, even different, yet again, uh, cruise ships. I mean, Royal Caribbean's down 30%, and yet on a technical base, one could have made the case, it's a textbook breakout. Um, and so bull traps are, are just that, a snare, they're treacherous. Let's look at NVIDIA. It is a, uh, a big stock that has broken out. And the risk here is that this too is a trap, that this um, is adored, it's loved, and it is perhaps, uh, and I think this is the right, if you're long, you gotta hedge, um, and or just uh, buy some puts and uh, uh, play for a speculative break. It, it looks like it has all the elements of a prospective bull trap. Uh, Carter, may I ask you, uh, in terms of the other examples of bull traps that have snared people, um, did you think that they looked like that they were going to reverse hard, or did it look so textbook in terms of the breakout that there was a moment in time where you thought, you know what, this, this could be it for these stocks? So interestingly, happily, we did not publish on a single one of those names as a prospective breakout. And that wasn't necessarily a great insight, a little bit of luck, a little bit of insight, but here's what it was. When all those stocks were breaking out, there were so many things that weren't confirming it. Banks and biotech and, and, and the Chinese market and so many things that were struggling, it felt like a trap. And so we specifically did not publish on any breakout candidates over the past three, four months for that very reason. All right, Carter, thanks. Carter Braxtonworth of Worth Charting. Julie, does NVIDIA tempt you? Could it snare you, perhaps? Has it already? <laughs> you know, I, I think the thing about NVIDIA is you have to think is where is that incremental buyer go that's going to help push this stock up further, right? I think there are a lot of people who are on the sidelines who are just like, man, I just, I absolutely miss this name. And I think fundamentally, you can really make the case that of the AI companies in Megatech, this is the only one that's actually experiencing growth right now. So it makes sense. All right, uh, up next, final trades. Julie Beal. You know, CoStar recently announced it was purchasing a number three player in the U, uh, UK retail market. But look, honestly, right move is the name player. That's the one. Mike Coe. Uh, cloud, AI, even streaming and a decent valuation. I like Alphabet, Google. Tim. TTE, Total Energy. Again, these integrators look great in this environment. This deal flow favors them. Guys. Fills down early, a lot of time. SPR, I think the bottom is in, Melms. All right, thank you for watching Fast Money. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. People today can spend half their lives over 50, so it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Yeah! 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.